right, our text for this morning is Genesis 47. I'll give you a moment to turn there. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen, and if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain they had, that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock, if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones. 
And they said, You have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day, that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Good morning, everyone. Hope you all are well on this beautiful, sunny Mother's Day day. Can I ask all the moms in the room just to stand up? Let's do this first today and just recognize you for the wonderful love and nurturing that you provided to all your families and to us men and everybody else. Let's just recognize the moms in this room. Happy Mother's Day to all of you, and Mark reminded the elders this morning, you know, Antioch began on Mother's Day 37 years ago. Is it 1987? Did I have the year right? I think it was 1987, but yeah, this is Antioch's birthday, uh, 37 years, so happy birthday to Antioch, and welcome to all of you who are here in person this morning, who are joining us online, and um, Janet for reading that long passage for Brent uh, and team leading us in worship this morning. We really appreciate that, and uh, the gifts that God has given everybody in this body to share uh, freely of. So this morning, um, I always have to feel like I apologize. Being an academic, I have a two-page introduction to the sermon this morning. My mind has been swirling uh, really about the whole Joseph narrative. I, I tend to go backwards and just kind of look at the big meta-narrative of Joseph uh, rather than just focusing on where we are in the text today. And it's a long passage and lots going on. And um, And one of the things that I thought about was how challenging and difficult it must have been for Joseph to wake up every day uh, being a faithful uh, Hebrew um, servant of the Lord God Almighty, living in a pagan land, you know. And maybe at first it wasn't as hard, but 17 years being in Egypt, how that must have worn on him, right, to see the extreme pagan culture, the darkness that was there, uh, the lifelessness spiritually there, um, him being really probably the only person of his faith in that nation. I mean, we don't know who else was there. Um, and then Jacob comes along later, and he has 17 years as well, an equal time frame to live and to, to do that. And that reminded me of Paul. Do you all remember the story in Acts 17? Uh, it was really started in 16, where Paul and Timothy and Silas were ministering in Thessalonica, and, and the gospel riled up um, sort of a, a riotous faction, and they, they pursued Paul all the way to Berea and uh, with the intent to do him harm. And the brothers, Timothy and Silas, they sent him on his way to Athens to protect him, right? And so Paul goes to Athens, and he's separated, and he's by himself. And I couldn't help thinking a couple years ago, I went to Ethiopia two years in a row, and the first year that I went, I was part of a, a team that was doing a filmmaking workshop with a Christian organization uh, in Washington, D.C., and my two partners and I were supposed to meet in New York City and then fly the 15-hour flight to Ethiopia. Well, I missed my flight. I missed the connection, and I've been looking forward to this trip, and so I had to fly that 15 hours by myself, and I had so looked forward to the company of my 
my collaborators on that team. It was, it was just, it was just hard. And I, I lost 24 hours because there's only one flight a day. And some of you may have been in situations like that. And so I'm thinking Paul, right? He's used to having his brothers at his side. Uh, but it says in Acts 17, 16, it says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. This is one day of Paul living in uh, in Athens, and he's provoked in his spirit because pretty much anything and everything you can imagine from a religious point of view is being celebrated in Athens, right? And they almost enjoy talking about it more than they actually do living it out. Um, it's the debate and the philosophy and all that kind of stuff going on. Well, he was provoked. And I thought, how many days uh, and years um, did Joseph experience the same? And would Israel experience during their 430 years of captivity uh, in Egypt that would come? Well, then that got me thinking about uh, Jeremiah, this wonderful passage in Jeremiah 29, where the Babylonians have come down and they've captured Jerusalem. They've hauled off the Israelites to Babylon, right? Um, and this is not going to be a short occupation in Babylon. It's going to be a long play. And Jeremiah tries to encourage them um, uh, with, with these verses in chapter 39. So we'll see if my clicker works this morning. And, and he wrote to them and he said, listen, um, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But my favorite verse, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you, I, the Lord God, have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for its welfare, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What a powerful thing to charge the people. Not only are they in captivity, Jeremiah is basically saying, listen, stop resisting. This is going to be a long deal. You're going to be here a while. Live as normal of a life as you can. And one more thing, pray for those, you know, who have captured you. Pray for the city that as it goes well for them, it will go well for you. That word welfare is the word from which we get shalom. Uh, which basically means safety, peace, health, and prosperity. So with one word, you can lavish blessing on another person and say, Jeremy, shalom, brother. And what I'm saying in saying shalom, I'm saying may God allow you to flourish. May he bless you with good health. May he bless you with safety. May he bless you and expand your boundaries and give you grace. And not, we're not talking about economic prosperity. We're talking about spiritually thriving uh, in God. Um, and I just love, love that phrase. So just like the Israelites in Jeremiah's time, Joseph found himself abducted, thrust into captivity, sold into slavery in Egypt, and separated from his family and homeland by his brothers who conspired evil against him. You all know the story. But we also know that this was part of God's plan. God sent Joseph into Egypt, right? And later on, Joseph would tell his brothers, in a few weeks we'll hear it from Pastor Mark, what you intended for evil, I intended for good. God intended for good, right? And you were basically, you were clay in the hands of the, the potter. You were being led by God to do what you did because this was part of God's eternal plan and his purposes for us. This was prophesied way back in Genesis 15 where Abraham was told by God, he said, no, for certain this. He said, your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs. They will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried at a good old age. So we know this is God's doing. Uh, Jeremiah, likewise, encouraged Israel to view their captivity as a part of God's providence, 
reminding them of God's promise to bring them back in an appointed time. In the case of Egypt and Israel, it would be 435 years, um, according to Exodus, the text there. But he would bring them back. He would fulfill his promise, but it was going to be a long time before they would see the promised land again. But God would be faithful. So let us remember the uh, words of Jesus um, here as well. Um, when we think of the welfare of people, Jesus encouraged us. He said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of the father who is in heaven, your father who's in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. And likewise in Matthew 15 or in Matthew five, he says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So Jeremiah encouraged the people to live normal lives as much as they could while in captivity, build houses, live in them, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But most importantly, to seek the welfare, the shalom of the city in which they were sent so that they too might experience the shalom of God on themselves and prosper while they were there and to flourish as God would show uh, his purposes through them. So as with the Egyptian exile and the enslavement, the captivity that was yet to come, God's promising the Israelites deliverance from the Babylonians, a return to the promised land at an appointed time. In Jeremiah 29, getting close to the end of the introduction, so it's not going to go on for the whole service. Um, Reading this within the context of what we've already just heard, he says, when 70 years are complete for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill you uh, to you, my promise, and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, for shalom, not for evil, to give you a hope and to give you a future. So, listen, bad things do happen to good people, but bad things do not necessarily mean that you are outside the will of the Lord and that God's hand has somehow been removed from the circumstances in your life. Sometimes, maybe all the time, okay, God is scripting our lives. He is the author, the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who is orchestrating these events, ultimately not to harm us but for our good and to give us a future and to give us a hope. So today, I want to look at the text through the lens of Shalom. Okay, we're going to look at the welfare of Israel in the verses 1 through 12. We're going to look at the welfare of Egypt and Canaan. And then we're going to look finally at the welfare of Jacob, the aging patriarch. So to begin with, the text tells us that uh, Joseph um, is kind of busy at work. He's probably the busiest administrator in all of Egypt, but he's got his priorities right. He knows family comes first. And so um, he uh, prepares his family, as Mark shared last week, for them to have an audience with the, you know, the, the, the big guy himself, the number one ruler probably in that part of the world. Um, got to be an intimidating thing to go before the king in shepherd's clothing and, and um and with probably little understanding of the protocols and everything else. But Joseph prepares them. Um, He hatches a plan to ensure the present and future welfare of his father and his brothers and their large company of 70 descendants. And true to form, he plans everything out, right? So um, according to Kent uh, Hughes, Joseph was a clever and an artful man devoted both to the welfare of Pharaoh and to that of his own people. Joseph's care is also evident because he took only five of his brothers to the royal audience. So Joseph, even though he knows that God's hand is over everything, we also know from Scripture and from the principles that we learn all the time through reading the Word of God, that God allows us to participate, right, by his grace in the work that he's doing. 
So Joseph's been given all this skill as an administrator, and that's what he's doing here. He's prepping, he's preparing, he's trying to win over Pharaoh so they can basically settle his family and they can move on. So he selects the land of Goshen as sort of the ideal place for them to settle as shepherds, the best place in all of Egypt, we're told. And Judah himself leads the way. They arrive in Egypt and they go straight to Goshen without even, you know, uh, you know, go directly uh, past jail, what's the monopoly phrase, you know, and go directly to go. Uh, they go straight there, um, thinking that perhaps it'll be easier for Pharaoh to grant their wish if they're already sitting there, you know, ready to sort of encamp in the land of Goshen. And he then presents his five brothers to Pharaoh. They follow his instructions. They tell them they are shepherds. And then they actually ask him, may we dwell in the land of Goshen? And Pharaoh's response sort of hints of this boundless favor that, um, that we see throughout this whole narrative. He says, listen, shepherds, Joseph and your family are welcome here. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So not only does he give them a place to dwell and a place to flourish and a place to prosper while the rest of Egypt is suffering, right, and and going through this extreme famine, he also offers to employ any of the brothers who can help with his royal livestock. So it reminded me again just of verse, uh, Proverbs 21, 1, which says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. It turns it, he turns it wherever he will. All right, so God is moving on Pharaoh to give carte blanche favor uh, to this family from the land of Canaan uh, in the midst of all this suffering uh, and all of his own people who are going without. Uh, just pretty much a mind-boggling and um, amazing, amazing thing. Well, after the brothers are done, Jacob comes in and he gets his moment, uh, his five minutes of fame standing before Pharaoh and is asked uh, to reveal his age, how old are you? And, and Jacob responds truthfully again with the unvarnished truth, right? This sort of crotchety old man, uh, you kind of just imagine Joseph, Jacob's had a tough life, you know, and he's just going to speak the truth. And he says, my days have been 130 years. And uh, this probably may have impressed Pharaoh because back then the average age for an elderly person was like 111. Uh, commentators, thank you for that little piece of nugget. I would have never known that. Uh, but not so much for Jacob because he lived under the shadow of his predecessors. Abraham lived to be 175, and Isaac lived to be 180, and Jacob eventually he lived to be 147. So, you know, he considered his years to be pretty much few, as he would say here in the next text. Few and evil have been the days of my life, have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father's or in the lives of their sojourning. So if you think about what Jacob's been through, few and evil have been the days of my life. We have to kind of go back over everything that we've studied about his life. You know, this is the man who lived 21 years in exile. He was sent way up to live with uh, relatives, right, 800 miles away, I believe, you know, for his own protection because his brother Esau wanted to kill him, and he lived in perpetual fear of his brother's wrath that entire time until they were finally reconciled by God's grace. He endured Laban's treachery, for all of that time in deceiving him first to marry Leah on his wedding night and making him wait seven years before he could marry his true love, Rachel. And then that was followed by another seven years of indentured servanthood or servitude. It wasn't really indentured because he was getting paid to Laban, but it was constantly changing and unfair compensation and wages. Laban was always changing the deal up to his advantage and abusing uh, Jacob, you know, in one way or another. Jacob had to endure, along with Rachel, the loss of Benjamin, uh, who was, uh, she died in childbearing on the way back to the promised land, to the land that would become 
um, their promised land. And then finally, he endured 17 years of grieving for his beloved son, Joseph, under false pretenses, under a false narrative due to the lies and the cover-up of his eldest sons. This guy has been through some tough stuff, right? Really, really hard stuff. And he sort of maybe didn't lay out this whole track record of his sufferings, but few and evil have been the days of my life. And so Jacob uh, is going to get a gift from God. These last 17 years are going to be a blessing for him, you know, after many, many years and decades of, of trial and tribulation. And so finally, he ends his meeting with Pharaoh by giving him a blessing. Uh, commentators I read, it said it's probably short and sweet. It was probably something like, long live the king, you know. Probably wasn't Aaron's blessing where he said, uh, the Lord bless you and keep you, because that was reserved for God's people. So it's probably a short blessing. But it tells me, again, the respect, right, because Pharaoh has blessed them. And now Jacob is going to bless Pharaoh on the way out as well. Um, I came across an article by a man named uh, Chris Patton, and he said this. He said, we need to follow King David's example and recognize that no one is in authority. No one is in authority unless God has placed them there. We may not like it, but it's not our job to pass judgment on God's choices of authority. It's our job to honor God and the authority he has placed over us. We must then trust him to make a change in that authority when it is in his timing to do so. Until then, we are to work as if working for our Lord. He will reward us for this either now or later. Peter put it this way. He said, be subject to the Lord's, oops, went too far. Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or the, uh, as supreme or to governors as sent to him by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that in doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Well, Joseph ends this section in the passage. He provides for his father's household. They have land, and then he goes to the extra extreme. He's going to make sure they have food in a time of famine. He's going to provide for his family. I couldn't help seeing the irony here a little bit because um, the Hebrew people are given the best land in which to settle, virtually an unlimited supply of food for the remainder of the famine uh, for survival. And the Egyptians, in contrast, as we're going to see in a minute, were forced to sacrifice everything. They lost everything trying to survive. They had to give up everything uh, just in order to endure the seven years of famine uh, before the times of, uh, of, of reaping harvests again would resume. And so Israel prospered while the Egyptians suffered poverty and ultimately indentured servant, servitude to, uh, to Pharaoh. Genesis 47, uh, 27 reminds us that at the end of the section, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it. They were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. God's blessings on them. And again, uh, we will eventually, you know, see that the tables will turn. You know, at some point, uh, we're told in Exodus that a new king will arise over Egypt who wouldn't know Joseph. And he would declare to the people this. He would say, behold, the people of Israel are too many now. This is hundreds of years later, we assume. We don't know the exact time. They're too many now, and they're too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And I couldn't help thinking again of how God works through leadership, right? You have one Pharaoh who God softens his heart, and Joseph can pretty much do no wrong. And everything Joseph needs and wants, you know, he is the number two man, no one greater in all of Egypt except Pharaoh. And, um, and then we have this other Pharaoh down the road who comes who didn't know Joseph, and God hardens his heart, Right? all the way unto the repeated cries of let my people go. And it took 10 plagues for him to relent. Uh, and even then, he wasn't done with the people of Israel. So, uh, again, just amazing how God moves on the hearts of leadership, sometimes to give favor to God's people, and sometimes perhaps to 
uh, give glory to himself to show that through a hardened Pharaoh and king, God could still work and move in mighty, mighty ways. Well, that leads us to point number two, the welfare of Egypt and Canaan, uh, verses 13 through 28. And this section begins with this dire summation of the situation. There, there was no food in all the land. Um, it pretty much had, had dried up, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, it languished. And um, I, I took some time just to look up definitions for famine. Uh, there's been a lot of bad famines. One in Ethiopia years ago is one of the worst. I think there were over 2 million people over the course of that famine who perished, who died. Um, the modern definition of famine looked on several websites, and I don't know what organization this comes from, but one of the criteria to label something a famine is that it's so severe that at least two people out of every 10,000 people will die per day during that famine due to malnutrition, disease, starvation, etc. And so at the time, Egypt had a population somewhere between 2 and 5 million. We don't know exactly how many, but if you used 4 million and you applied the modern-day metric, which really we really can't do, but just for, for comparison's sake, that would mean a daily death toll of about 400 people um, per day unless there was a sufficient plan in place to provide for their needs, which we know there was. So if you multiply that out over seven years of famine, this grows to about one million people. And it's just an estimate. And then you have to expand that out to all the land of Canaan, the other places where the famine touched. It's safe to say that Joseph, over 14 years of managing the affairs of Egypt, he saved countless millions of lives because God had used him for that time and that season of life. And these people would have perished uh, without the extreme measures. So when we get into how he is managing the supply and demand, we need to look at it through uh, the historic ancient Egyptian lens and not through our modern sort of worldview. So there's a little bit of a caution here. Uh, through the modern lens, you know, we might sort of, you know, cringe a little bit. You know, what if feed the hunger, um, sorry, Scott, for this analogy, this is not a rumor, don't spread this on, but what if feed the hunger announced tomorrow that, hey, listen, uh, we're changing our financial model, we're going to now start charging the Ukrainians, you know, uh, $5 for every packet of food that we deliver. Um, it'll help cover our overhead, it will help us expand our region, our territory, or whatever. We would cringe at the thought of, of them doing that or other organizations because we're used to humanitarian aid being freely given. It doesn't mean it's free. The cost comes from somewhere, but it, co it comes from the giver, right? Or it comes from the government. And we're used to that model here. And that did not exist um, in the day of ancient Egypt and Mesopotamia. Um, biblical scholar, I'm not even going to try to say his name. It's at the bottom of the screen here. Uh, but he said this. He said, Joseph's actions cannot be measured by the moral standards of the Hebrew Bible as inculcated through a Western civilization or through a Western lens. Rather, they must be judged in the context of ancient Near Egypt, ancient Near Eastern world, by whose norms Joseph emerges as a highly admirable model of a shrewd and successful administrator. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He says, we must remember that there was no welfare system and no concept of entitlements. Moreover, this was not Israel, but it was Egypt. In later Israel, family members would help destitute relations by buying their land and employing them as servants or slaves. And those who were thus indentured received their land back in the year of Jubilee, which I think was every 50 years. So thus, in Egypt, it was different. The economic system required quid pro quo, this for that. You didn't get grain unless you brought something to exchange for the grain. There was a monetary value and, and price that was put on that. And so uh, the need was so great we're told in the text that the Egyptian monetary resources ran out really, really quickly. 
Joseph gathered up all of the money, you know, that was found in the land of Egypt. People brought their coins. They paid for grain for a while, and that maybe worked for a year or two. Who knows how long that lasted? But at some point, the people ran out of money. So Joseph shifted to a barter system, and he basically started accepting the livestock from people as payments. So their horses, their flocks, their herds, their donkeys. And then the following year, as they bought themselves some more time, um, he opened up the door for them uh, to buy uh, to basically trade their land. Actually, he didn't open the door for them. They opened it themselves uh, with regard to saying, listen, we have nothing left. Take us, take our land. We need to survive. And it was their idea to actually put themselves into indentured servitude for the sake of their survival. And that sounds a little bit kind of cruel to us. And if you're still struggling with that, I would point you to a modern day example just from U.S. history um, to the sharecropper movement. And um, you know, in sharecropping, this is this is uh, started in 1867 after the Civil War during the time of Reconstruction in the Deep South. Um, you know, things were pretty tough. Um, the history records that immediately after the Civil War, the freedmen who wanted autonomy and independence, they refused to sign contracts for gang labor, and sharecropping emerged as a compromise. So landowners divided up their plantations into 20 to 50 acre plots suitable for farming by a single family. In exchange for the use of a land, cabin, supplies, sharecroppers agreed to raise cash crop, give a portion, usually 50%, okay, of the crop to the landlord. Landowners extended credit because they're not getting wages, so they have to buy basic necessities while the crops are growing. So in order to do that, hey, here's some money, but they charge them exorbitant interest rates, sometimes as high as 70% creating a system of economic dependence and poverty that would just become a perpetual cycle. And by the end of the 1860s, it's that most, most of the farmers under this system went into debt or they were forced by poverty or the threat of violence to sign unfair, exploitative shop, uh, shop sharecropping con- contracts that left them little hope of improving their situation. And by 1870, only about 30,000 African Americans in the South owned land, usually really small plots, compared with 4 million others who didn't. They just couldn't. The money wasn't there and the economic system wouldn't allow them to grow uh, and to basically rise out of their destitute state of poverty. So by comparison, Joseph's statue requiring only one-fifth or 20% was generous. That meant they got to keep 80% of what they reaped, and they got to put that into seed for the next year. And it was enough of a gap to where eventually, if they were hardworking and so forth, they could rise out of that poverty. They could basically be prosperous again and maybe even eventually purchase back their own land. It was a fair and compassionate system, but as any human system, it can be abused. And we saw it abused here uh, in the South, you know, after the Civil War. I'm sure it's been abused in other places around the world, uh, but it can also be used fairly. And the whole idea of tenant farming, which came later, was sort of a, a hybrid model of that. So we end with um, the welfare of Jacob, and we look at these last verses here. Um, We're told right in verse 27 that Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. They gained possessions in it. They were fruitful. They multiplied greatly. So everything we kind of have come to expect of the people of God, um, you know, even in tough times, it's, it's being played out here. And the writer turns our attention then to the final days of Jacob and to his dying wish. Um... Jacob summons Joseph to his side. He makes one final request, and he says, listen, don't bury me here in Egypt. Let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt. Bury me in their burying place, which is way back in Hebron, the plot of land, the cave at Machpelah, uh, which he had purchased um, many, many years before. 
um, to bury Sarah. And Joseph replies, he said, I will do so. And to seal the deal, he, he sealed it with a promise and he sealed it with an oath. The placing of the hand under the thigh just sort of signifies, again, how serious this is. Joseph is going to fulfill his father's wishes. He will take his bones and bury him back, um, uh, you know, at the appointed time. And Kent Hughes writes this. He says, certainly Jacob knew that wherever he died, wherever his bones were buried, he would go to be with his fathers. The reason for the demand was that burying his remains in Canaan was a declaration of his faith and the promise of the land to Abraham and his seed forever. Abraham had purchased the tomb for Sarah in faith, and he himself had been buried next to her in faith. And there Isaac's bones had been laid alongside of theirs in faith. And like him, Jacob, in faith, looked to the ultimate prosperity. Well, just some closing thoughts on this chapter to leave you guys with. And first one is simply uh, an admonition, exhortation to all of us this morning to trust in God's providence and to trust in his provision. Um, I mean, that sounds like we just automatically do that, right? But do we do it really? Um, you know, I, I go back, I went back to Mark's sermon on Genesis 35, which I guess was probably a couple months ago. And he quoted John Piper, who talked, who gave a kind of a working definition of providence and kind of did this from the first person point of view as if we were saying this in English, but we use words like this. Piper, Piper in talking about God's providence, he said this, he said, um, it means, you know, I'll see to that. I'll take care of that. See means to take care of or to provide for. In other words, seeing something with a purpose is to make provision for what you see. Seeing to something is acting on behalf of something. It is providing. Thus, providence is the act of God seeing to the universe. He'll see to that. And, and we see that in this text so clearly how God took care of not only the needs of, Jake, of Joseph and his family, but he also took, knee, uh, took care of the needs of two large pagan regions, the, the nation of Egypt and the land of Canaan and probably a whole lot of other places in between. The blessing spilled out. It wasn't just for Jacob and his family, but the blessings of God spilled out, and many uh, people were blessed. Uh, the goodness of God fell on the righteous and the unrighteous, and that was God's purpose. So when we pray for the welfare or the shalom of cities and people, whether they are a friend or a foe, we're asking God in his providence, take care of it. Take care of it, Lord. I've got this unruly boss who right now is making my life miserable. Take care of it, please. Intervene. Bless my boss. Pour out your, your blessing of safety, health, uh, peace, and prosperity. Change the heart of my boss. You know, change my circumstances. And God may or may not do that. We don't know. But pray the blessing on that person and bless them. Bless your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Sometimes they're in our own family, right? Sometimes conflict arises in the family between children, between children and their parents. And um, we would never think of them as our enemies, but at that one point in time, they are perceived as the source of conflict, perhaps the source of you're robbing me of my joy because you will not let me do this or I can't do that or whatever. And we blame somebody for basically disrupting what we want to accomplish at a point in time. And we forget that God has put these people in our life and he's moving in them in such a way that we need to have happen to us. We, in home group this week, we were talking about, I can't remember the exact wording of Mark's question that he gave us last week, but it was something to do with, you know, whether you were raised in a Christian home or whether you were raised by uh, non-Christian parents. Um, in my case, Beth was raised in a really loving, nurturing Christian home environment. I was raised in a loving environment by, by unbelieving 
um, Italian um, mom and an Irish dad, and boy, do we have communication in our home. Um, have you ever watched my big fat Greek wedding? That was my family. Uh, it was very, very, very loud. Um, and uh, that was the love language, was loud. Loud was the love language. Um, you would think it was anger. It wasn't always anger. It was just loud. Um, and that was it. And, and we had all sorts of things. And as I look back on that time, I have, as I've gotten older, um, I'm grateful for the family that I had. I'm grateful for the parents God gave me. Yeah, they weren't believers. Their hearts changed over time, and I'm not exactly sure where they were when they left this life, but I saw a change in them. And I know that God put them in my life for a reason to make me who I am today, right? They didn't set the best example. They didn't teach me the scriptures, but life lessons were learned, you know, and I was molded and I was shaped and I became the man of God I needed to be regardless because God was sovereignly working through them to uh, basically perfect me. And I'm grateful for that and I'm thankful for that. And so this whole this whole text this morning just sort of changes my point of view. If I trust in God's providence that he's over all things, um, then I don't need to cast the blame when things don't always go my way. In fact, scripture encourages me to pray for those who might be the source of, of conflict in my life. Second, another one that's probably pretty easy to think about. Um, oh, I forgot a key verse here. Um, no, I didn't. It's coming up. I went too far. Sorry, guys. I get nervous and I start pushing buttons. Have you guys ever done that? All right, so number two, I did pass it again. Sorry about that. Revealing all my slides here. Believe that all things are designed by God to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, a paraphrase from Romans 8, 28. Um, and then Kent Hughes sort of puts it in his own wording. I really like the way he phrases it. He says, rest assured that everything that comes to us in this life, whether we regard it as good or as evil, is meant to prosper us. That's a tough tr choice, right, or tough, tough truth to sort of grapple with. Everything that comes to us in this life, whether we regard it as bad or good or good or evil, it's meant to prosper us. The words of Ecclesiastes 7.14 say this. It says, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will come after him. God is the source of all our experiences, of all of our circumstances, whether they are perceived at the present time as good or bad. There's a long-range divine plan that God is carrying out, and this is part of his plan. I'm going through cancer right now. Praise God, the prognosis is good. Uh, but this truth totally rewires how I think about it. I still would stand before you and say, I despise cancer. I want to see it go away. I want to see a cure formed. I want to see people healed of cancer. I want to see victory. But while I'm going through this, I'm not lamenting that this horrible thing has come upon me. I'm trusting that God in his sovereignty knows what he's doing. And this is a part of my journey that God has planned out from the beginning that I have to walk through. And good will ultimately come out of it. He didn't create this for harm. He created this to give me hope and a future, you know. And I'm grateful, again, my prognosis is good. It's not always that good for other people. And we've, we've seen dear, precious saints suffer far worse consequences. And that truth becomes a little harder to digest when we don't necessarily see the outcome that we want to see. But I think back to Corey Tim Boom in the prison camp when she prayed for her and her sister, right? She prayed, Lord, set us free. And God set Corey Ten Boom free through the liberation of the troops. She was set free physically and was able to live a long life after that. She set her sister free through death. 
So we don't always get the answer that we hope for or we want, for, uh, we want but we're trusting in God to work out his purposes uh, in us. It's really easy to blame people as the objects of our discontent or to be offended when we're treated poorly or unfairly. And in doing so, we ignore the spiritual reality that God is using people and circumstances to build us up and at sometimes, other times, to tear us down so that he may rebuild us and sanctify us and perfect us as he sees fit. It's all part of his plan for his glory. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And the last thing I'll leave you with is um, Mark has said this multiple times through the study. He said, we're never alone. We've seen this theme all the way through Genesis. We're never, ever, ever alone. God is with us through all of these times. He was with Joseph in the pit, just like he was with Joseph in the jail cell. He was with Joseph in the palace, and he was with Joseph under Pharaoh in his court. He was with him every step of the way. And I'm sure if he summed up his life in the pit at that particular time, it would be so easy to be in the pit and take on a woe is me. And I'm sure he had those moments. Why am I being victimized this way? Why have my brothers so treated me so miserably? And he could have stayed in that place, but he chose rather to trust in the Lord and to live out his faith under the hope that God was not set against him to harm him, but that he too had a hope and a future. And I'll leave you today just with a, a verse that you all know. It's a, it's a great verse just to end on, I think, that ties us all together. But Romans 8, 35, 39 says this. This is Paul, and it's just a wonderful declaration uh, and a reminder uh, of God never leaving us alone. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are all being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Folks, all of creation, there's nothing that that does not uncover, uh, include. will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He is with us. He will not forsake us. And so just hold these things dear to your heart today. I hope it helps. I think we all need reminders, uh, not just of God's word. We, we all say we believe things, but I think we're also challenged as we grow older to test our belief. Is our belief really as solid as we want? Are we really, really trusting in God's providence provision? Are we really believing that his intentionality is always good not to harm us, but to give us a hope and a future and that he has designed the circumstances of our life. He is the scriptwriter. He is telling our story. It's unfolding before him and before all mankind. And then just to remember that we're never alone. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for, um, for your word. Uh, Lord, just for the principles and the truth uh, that you teach us through your word. And I pray this morning that, Lord... Um, you know, I'm just a, a clay vessel, Lord, and, and I don't know how well this came through, but I hope and pray uh, that, Father, your word came through and what we needed to hear this morning came through. And, Father, whatever place we're at, if we're in that place this morning uh, that represents the day of prosperity or if we're in that place this morning or maybe even in a season of life, Lord God, where we're experiencing days of affliction, Lord, that we might have comfort and reassurance in knowing that, Lord, you have made both and that there's divine purpose and there's divine intentionality, Lord God, in all of this, that you've created it for our good and for our future because ultimately, Lord, you know what we need and you have designed all of these things, Lord God, 
to fulfill your purposes in the earth. Help us to be faithful with that. Help us to, Lord, embrace this hard truth, to pray for those who are not only our enemies, but, Lord, to pray for those, a blessing of shalom, and to mean it, Lord God, on others when they treat us in a way that we think is not right. Or maybe change our attitude. Help us to see that person differently as an object of God's design, of your design. And, Lord, to pray for them. And to let that be our first thing that we do rather than to complain and to gripe and to mumble, uh, Lord God, about our circumstances. Help us to have a, the perspective and the mindset and the prayer life, Lord God, that would, uh, would most honor you and glorify your name. We commit all of these things to you. I thank you for this day. I thank you for this people. I thank you for this church and for your blessing on us in Jesus' name. Amen.